Hi, everybody. Another fantastic guest today. This is God's Hot for the Hot Truth. I have Louise Perry. How are you doing, Louise? I'm very well. Thank you. How are you? Wonderful. Uh, let me just read uh, your brief bio. Uh, you're a journalist. You're a columnist for Unheard. You're a fe features writer for the Daily Mail, host of the Maiden Mother Matriarch podcast, director and co-founder of the Other Half Think Tank, and the author, first-time book author of this little gem, called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century. Did I hit all the marks, or is there anything else you'd like to add to the bio? No, very comprehensive. Thank you. <laughs> all right. So why don't we start? I mean, th this is a topic that's dear to my heart for several reasons, one of which is I'm an evolutionary psychologist, so I've dealt with a lot of the feminists, both who love my work and the feminists who think I'm a Jewish quack Nazi scientist. So I've had both those. I also dealt with feminism in The Parasitic Mind, my last book, where I talk about militant feminism being an idea pathogen. So this is all within my wheelhouse. Why don't you just tell us the the, the, the main premise of the book and we could take it from there? Uh, so my central claim is that men and women are different in certain very important ways. Um, the obvious, well, I should say, I mean, the physical differences should be obvious. They're not obvious <laughs> in 2023, but you know, they, 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 I think most people listening will, will recognize that um, the physical differences between men and women are very important. Only women can get pregnant. Only men can do the impregnating. Women are substantially smaller and physically weaker than men, etc., which has obvious social ramifications, particularly when it comes to heterosexual relationships. Um, I also assert that there are some average psychological differences between men and women that evolution didn't stop at the neck and that those differences also play out in certain very important ways. And I think that feminists, um, and I count myself among them, have made an error in rejecting evolutionary psychology um, because actually I think that it's it's a completely morally neutral tool. You know, it's just a, it's a scientific discipline. It's not a it's not a it's not inherently political in any way. I think that actually there are lots of ways in which we can use evolutionary psychology in a really productive way to try and defend women's interests. Because my argument is that actually post-sexual revolution, we've entered a, a sexual culture which prioritizes uh, short-term mating, uh, particularly at certain points in your life cycle, and delayed marriage and delayed childbearing and all this and, and all these sort of modern features, which actually I think primarily serve the interests of a minority of men and cause women and the rest of men a lot of harm. So right. I think that actually if we just accept that there are profound differences between men and women, we could have a much more sensible kind of feminist politics. Right. So, in, so two two things I want to say. First, my, my first exposure to evolutionary psychology was as a first, uh, my first semester as a doctoral student. I had taken a course by a professor named Dennis Regan and about halfway through the course, he assigned the book Homicide by two of the pioneers of evolutionary psychology, uh, Margot Wilson and Martin Daly. And in the book, they um, explore a wide range of uh, you know forms of criminality via an evolutionary lens. And, and that's when I was hooked to the explanatory power of, of evolutionary psychology. Now, to your point about you know understanding the dynamics between men and women, one of the examples from their book that had really resonated with me was uh, the the path the universal and time invariant patterns of you know who is the most dangerous uh, person in a woman's life whether you're in the Yanomomo tribe in the Amazon or whether you're in the 1950s in Detroit or today in London 
is usually her long-term partner. It's not, you know, it's not the the serial rape, you know, rapist hiding in the trees. And usually the reason why you either have, you know, uh, domestic violence leading all the way up to killing of a woman is for suspected or realized infidelity. And then of course you get into paternity uncertainty, the threats and so on. And so it, to your point, it, it it is so outlandish to try to understand a sexually reproducing species that has sexual dimorphism void of why these evolutionary principles exist. Why do you think the reticence exists among so many feminists? Uh, I mean, the word that's been used most frequently by my feminist critics about this book is that I'm defeatist. Right. So the idea is that if you could only erase the differences between men and women, you know, if we if we accept the idea that the differences between men and women are a consequence of socialization, then you can also believe that you could undo them, that, it, you know, one generation's time, you, you could just completely transform how we raise little children. Um, and then all of the sort of horrors of, of male violence against women, you know, the whole works would disappear. Right. Um, the idea that these things are rooted in deep evolutionary history is really unwelcome if that's your project. I think that it, I mean, I just think that that project is a non-starter. I don't think it's ever going to succeed. I think that the task that's actually before us, if we're, if we're sort of practically minded, <laughs> is to say, okay, here's here's how human beings are. What kind of incentives could we put in place? What kind of social institutions, laws, various structures that we can manipulate could we put in place that would encourage the best behaviour in both men and women? I think that's actually the task, and you can't make any kind of attempt at that task unless you actually understand what human beings are like. Right. And, and, and I don't, you know, it's, it's not just an academic exercise to, you know, to tease out whether the, the social constructivists are correct or whether the evolutionists are correct. And of course, as you know, it's not that evolutionists reject the idea that socialization matters, but they recognize that socialization exists in its forms because of biological imperatives. But in any case, uh, to, to I think to the central premise of your book, and it's something that I cover briefly in, in I have a forthcoming book on happiness, where I talk about you know, they are they are downstream effects of adopting ideologies that are antithetical to human nature. So if you tell women, look, you are indistinguishable from men, and if men are are desirous of having you know unfettered uh, you know sexual uh, you know sex behind the shed burn your bras, ladies, and do the same. Well, okay, for some women, sure, they're interested in sexual variety and they're willing to have these short-term dalliances. But in terms of trying to establish a direct path to happiness, many women then end up, as as the research shows, longitudinal tracking of, of happiness in women seems to perfectly coincide with going down with the adopting of many of these second wave feminist mantra. Do, do, do you get into that in, in your book? No, but I am familiar with that research. And I think it is also remains true. I mean, it's very difficult to measure um, differences in happiness between parents and non-parents, as, as I'm sure you know from writing yeah. this book. Um, but my understanding is that women who have children and get married and don't have very many sexual partners do tend to be on average slightly happier than right. other Did women. And the, and yes, we definitely see this see this change over time. Where actually, since the second wave, women have become less happy. You're right, average. right. And, and of course, the, the, I mean, you you would know this, but maybe some of our listeners don't. Uh, you know, equity feminists, a la 
you know, as espoused by, say, Christina Huff Summer, Summer is okay. Uh, men and women should be treated equally under the law. There shouldn't be any institutional barriers against one sex. And I think most reasonable people would say, yeah, sign me up. I'm an equity feminist. I think we're militant feminists. You can call them radical feminists. There are different appellations you can use is where they say, well, I think you use the word their project. In, in in seeking to implement the project of eradicating the patriarchal status quo, we need to murder and rape truth in the service of that noble goal. And how do you murder truth? You say that there are no evolved sex differences between men and women, because to internalize that correct position would then make it more difficult to eradicate the sexist. So, so in a sense, they do start off from a noble position, but then it 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 sort of deviates into lunacy for consequentialist reasons. Yeah, it's utopianism. And yeah. utopianism often comes from the, from, uh, well, it, it can come from a combination of emotional places, one of which is a very good one, to wanting, wanting to ameliorate suffering. One is, I think, actually quite uh, often power hunger. You know, the idea of recreating society according to your own blueprint is obviously very attractive for people who want to exert, exert their will. Um, the problem is that, utopianism has an extraordinarily bad record historically yeah. in terms of actually actually improving anything um and can often be very dangerous so i you know i have a lot of i have a lot of friends who are radical feminists i have historically been um more sympathetic to radical feminism i and i do think that much of it is coming from a very good place in terms of just wanting to prevent rape and murder you know that's a good thing <laughs> almost all of us I think are in complete agreement on that project it's just how do you do it and I don't think that focusing exclusively on socialization is how you do that now I noticed uh I, I must admit that I only quickly kind of went through the, the the main highlights of the book so I haven't delved into it yet uh although I I, I hope to uh, I was looking at some of your um blurbers or endorsers and uh First name I saw, which got me concerned a bit, and you'll you'll correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. Uh, Julie Bindel is that is, that, is it Julia or Julie Julie? I can't remember. Is it Julie? Is it, yeah. Julie. Now I I think I'm going on memory here, but maybe five or six years ago, I had released a sad truth clip uh, in reference to a position she had taken where she was arguing that you know heterosexuality is a bad thing, and so I, as many other women feminists have done, you know. Andrea Dworkin and so on. So how do you reconcile some of the stuff that she has said that I've been exposed to that seems kind of quacky with the fact she seems to certainly support your position? Are, are these two things reconcilable? Well, Julie also wrote quite a critical review. So, so I go way back with Julie. We've known each other for like a decade okay. because we um, have a shared interest in um, anti-sexual violence work. And so have 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 worked together on several different things. Um, we also disagree on a whole bunch. I think she's I think she's wrong about the idea that sexual orientation is entirely socialized. She thinks I'm wrong about <laughs> about marriage, among much else. But um, one of the things I really like about Julie and the reason that we've been friends for so long is that she doesn't sort of demand intellectual or political purity among her friends and associates. So we're able to disagree and agree. What a novel idea. Right. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, a rare and precious trait. <laughs> right. Very nice. Uh, were you always, I mean, if, if we were to, you know, go back to, I don't know, your university days or whatever, it, did you always hold 
the positions that are ultimately espoused in your book, or was there a trajectory whereby you started, uh, you know, uh, high heels are the patriarchy and then moved into your current positions and it's, and your position soften, or were you always holding that position? I still hate high heels, but that's mostly because I have bunions, so I can't wear them. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I've had a, I've, I've, I've definitely, um, sort of been on a journey ideologically, although, I was never really, I mean, so in the book, I, I write often about um, liberal feminism. So feminism is an extremely uh, factional movement. There's always been a lot of infighting. There's an interesting question there, actually, we, should, we might get to about whether or not that's due to female intersexual competition. Um, and I've never been convinced by liberal feminism, which is the sort of dominant the dominant feminism right now is the sort of feminism of Cosmopolitan magazine and uh, Emma Watson and Me Too and uh, you know very much of the of of you know one um, except the idea that men and women are are psychologically identical on average and that the physical differences between men and women are trivial and moreover that anyone who wants to identify as the opposite sex or something some other sex entirely is completely you know um, entitled to do so. Uh, I've never been convinced of that school of feminism. I have been, when I was at university, I uh, I volunteered in a rape, in a rape crisis centre and I later worked in a rape crisis centre and um, was more convinced at that time by radical feminism, which is more like Marx, probably can best be understood as a kind of feminist iteration of Marxism in the sense that it understands men and women as being distinct classes and men have historically sort of exploited women's labour and so on. Um, I don't, I don't hold to that view anymore. I think actually that that history and contemporary reality is much more complicated than that. And I think that there there is as women and men have always and will I hope continue to collaborate in all sorts of important ways that aren't captured by that kind of conflict theory. Right. Well, I want to show you. I don't. Are you familiar? Do you know? Have you ever seen this book before? Do you know it? I don't I know if you could see, read it. I can't see the old. You can't see it. Oh, okay, David Bass. I've read lots of Bass. I don't know if I've read that one. So this, but this is an edited book by David Bass and uh, Neil uh, Malamute uh, of UCLA. I'm, I'm not sure if he's retired now. And it's an edited uh, anthology of, uh, you know, article, you know, chapters where people are trying to reconcile some tenets of feminism with evolutionary psychology. And I think that if if you if you practice or preach the quote correct version of feminism, you can actually see that they they could they could be reconciled quite quite nicely. And so let me just offer one example that might be interesting to you, but and certainly hopefully to our viewers and listeners. Uh, sexual selection, which is a fundamental evolutionary mechanism, right? Natural selection are the adaptations that confer a survival advantage to an organism. Sexual selection are the ones that confer a mating advantage, right? So of course, most people know the classic example of the peacock's tail evolving. It evolves because of recurring female mate choice. So for most species, it is female mate choice that drives the evolutionary trajectory of male behavior, male morphology, male anatomy, right? And so even, for example, 
men, it, not men, but male testicles, you, you might know the, the studies done across primates, the size of male testicles in a species of primates is an adaptation to female promiscuity in that species. The greater the, the testicles, that usually implies that the females of that species engage in more promiscuous behavior, say like chimpanzees, whereas mountain gorillas, although they are formidable, the males are these majestic, you know, massive beasts, their testicles are very small because they they their mating arrangement in one is one of polygyny. One male controls sexual access to many females. So only that could be viewed as quite an empowering feminist message because you're basically saying that male trajectories are completely at the whim of what female choose. What could be more feminist than that? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm rooting it in science. Yeah. I mean, there's also an awful lot of uh, like quite practical policy and and sort of social implications from, from um, evolutionary psychology. A book that really, really changed my life um, and set me on the path towards writing, writing my book was A Natural History of Rape oh, by yeah. Thornhill and Palmer. Oh, yeah. Sure. Which, <laughs> right. Which was... Um, Enormously controversial at the time of its publication. I can't remember exactly when, but possibly 20 years ago or more. It was, and, I think it came out in 2000, I believe. Okay. And um, and I wasn't aware of any of that controversy at the time um, because I was eight years old. But I I learned about this book when I was working still in, at Rape Crisis. And I had a lot of, um, I had a lot of misgivings about a lot of the standard feminist explanations for sexual violence. The most... Um, prominent of which is probably uh, this idea that rape is not about sex, it's about power. Right. Yeah, the rapists aren't motivated by sexual desire. They're motivated by wanting to control their victims in some fashion or even to control all women, you know, that it's a sort of political act. Statement, yeah. Yeah, and I didn't think that seemed very likely to me and <laughs> and I was because I was also seeing I was I was I was doing several things one of which was going to schools and teaching consent workshops another was working directly with victims and and training volunteers for the helpline and so on and so I just ended up speaking to a lot of victims and one of the things that I was surprised by is how young they are like rape victims are really young modal yeah. modal age is 15 um, and perpetrators are also younger than most people think. Perpetrators are only a little bit older than victims generally. And and also things like about two to five percent of rape victims are male. And male rape victims are overwhelmingly raped in childhood, much, much more likely to be raped in childhood than in adulthood than, than are female. And that's the sort of thing where you think, how does the feminist theory explain that? Like, and then I thought, well, hang on. If we recognize the fact that probably about two to five percent of men are gay or bisexual, suddenly that makes perfect sense. Right. You know, the rapists would target that you know, that the the objects of their sexual interest. So I had all of these kind of queries in my head. And I came across um an actual history of rape and I I went to I went to the library and I read it. And it and it was just the scales falling from my eyes. It was yeah. just like suddenly all of this makes sense. It all makes sense. And um, you know, I mean, I'm not I'm not sufficiently trained in evolutionary biology and psychology to know to assess every claim made in the book. But the whole approach made perfect sense to me. Um, and 
you know, for those who don't know, the book was enormously controversial. <laughs> the authors had to check under their cars, were advised by, by the police at one period to check under their cars for bombs. That was how much vitriol they attracted. Um, but actually, you know, like one of the one of the one of the pieces of um one of the prescriptive there's, there's there's a later chapter where they talk about sort of you know if we accept the idea that actually sexual aggression is evolved in men um for some reason there are different you know there are different explanations as to why it might have it might have evolved in, in men and there's a and there's a, there's a range as well some men are more sexually aggressive than others by there's probably some sort of bell curve um but if we accept this what can we do about it and one of the very sort of minor prescriptions that they have is to uh, put the male and female accommodation at summer camp in different bits of the site. You know, just because if you leave adolescent or teenage girls and boys alone together, particularly if they have access to alcohol, like it's quite likely that, that sexual assault might be a consequence of that. And one of the things you can do in a very, very practical way is just not allow them <laughs> to be together with, with, you know, particularly with alcohol. And to my mind, that's just such like a blindingly obvious, but also incredibly useful piece of advice for any yeah. parent, for any teacher. And that's exactly the sort of thing that you're not allowed to say, <laughs> not allowed to say, right, right. as I as I have learned in some courses from having written this book. Some people just don't want to hear it. So a uh, couple of things I want to say. Number one, uh, regarding your last point about, uh, you know, separating the boys and girls in, in camp, the, the only context where... The, uh, that is unnecessary. It might at first surprise you, but when I once I explain it, I think you you'll see it. There's something called the Westermark effect, whereby you know kids who are raised together from a young age, developmentally, even if they are non-kin, will develop a sexual repulsion to each other in exactly the way you would expect it of siblings. So it's mm -hmm. what's called an ontogenetic mechanism, meaning it's a developmental one. The the Darwinian mechanism says if raised together, then be sexually repulsed. Well, on on in in Israel in the kibbutzim in in those communal living, kind of the Marxist utopia that you know that uh, some Israelis thought would happen, these communal farms, uh, you didn't have to worry about doing what you what you suggested because the boys and girls were raised together, even though they came from different, you know, they, they were not kin, and yet they weren't having sex with each other. So that I just thought that was a, a small parenthesis of. Do, go ahead. Do you know what the crucial age is? when the kids at which so i definitely so there is a a per, that, that's a great question there is a type of i actually discussed this in this this book the first my, my first book the evolution of basis of consumption there uh, so i'm going to try to answer your question by giving you another cultural example so there is a particular type of a marriage arrangement in the far east whereby a girl is uh, be thrown to a little boy from a very young age and then she goes and lives with the boy's family uh, and i think it's in the order of by age 4 or 5 it's it's definitely if you do it before then that repulsion is going to kick in so certainly by that point uh, so it's it's not as though they have to be raised together from you know 2 weeks old but that you're sufficiently conscious of the fact that you were raised together. So I can't remember the exact age, but it's in the order of four or five. Uh, okay. And, and, and sending kids to school together wouldn't be sufficient. That wouldn't be sufficient. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah that's that's a great, great question. Uh, now, you might say, well, okay, well, how do you, in the case of the kibbutzim, we, we, we know that the mechanism is operating because they're not having 
nonstop sex with each other. If anything, they're like, ooh, this is disgusting. I can't even think about that. In the case of the marriage, I think uh, the, the, the Far East arranged marriages, I think it's greater rate. So the dependent variables that to measure the hypothesis or to test the hypothesis that the rate of failed marriages that stem from that arrangement are higher. And I think if I'm not mistaken, if I remember correctly, the the rate of sexual dysfunction within the marriage is is higher in exactly how you would predict it. Uh, but to your earlier point about checking underneath the uh, the cars for bombs, uh, Randy Thornhill is a is a personal friend of mine. He actually came on the show last year, but many, many years ago in 2006, I, when I was finishing that that first book that I just mentioned earlier, I had been kindly invited by the University of New Mexico, where he, he he's still a professor, to, to speak to their evolutionary group. Uh, and so we had gone out, Randy and I, to to uh, for for lunch. And I asked him, I said, so g- give me give me some of the story. He said, oh, I had to have police, you know, campus police protection all the time. And now to my final point, and then I'll cede the floor to you again, that perfectly demonstrates one of the cognitive and emotional obstacles for why people get so triggered from evolutionary psychology, because they presume that if you offer an evolutionary slash scientific explanation for a phenomenon, that must imply that you are condoning it and justifying it. And the way I usually break people out of that, frankly, imbecility, is I say, well, this is like arguing. Logically speaking, this is like arguing that an oncologist is for pancreatic cancer, because by trying to explain it, he, he or she is justifying it and is condoning it. But it, it's very, very hard for people if you try to explain child abuse or domestic violence or war or rape, then they think that you're giving cover for those ugly phenomena. Have you have you seen that in your own work? Oh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> yeah, the naturalistic fallacy is alive and well. Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, yes, I mean, I think people find... I had this conversation actually with um, uh, Diana Fleischman on my podcast a few weeks oh, right. ago. Why do people... Um, find evolutionary psychology so alarming and um, one of her points which I think is definitely true is it, it it does ascribe extremely cynical motives to human beings even though it's often not conscious cynicism it, it, it it's just quite grim <laughs> right. and I think that if you want to sort of believe that we have anything angelic about us then evolutionary psychology will quickly disabuse you of that notion, which just isn't very, isn't very pleasant. So I think that, I mean, one of the responses I've had actually um, to to the book, um, I mentioned that one of the criticisms was that I'm defeatist. Another criticism is that I um, paint men, paint all men as rapists, which I really don't. I say explicitly in the book several times that actually, you know, the hashtag not all men, the response to me, the, the me too hashtag is actually true. It, you know, it, it's, we don't know exactly the numbers because it's it's sort of infamously difficult to calculate but it's definitely the case that a majority of men have never committed rape and also that a majority of men would never commit rape and actually you can do studies in in the lab where you sort of expose men to violent sexual imagery and a majority of men are not aroused by it you know right. it, it's actually a good news story right the problem is that there is an unknown minority who are aroused by it and will either you know be very very strongly motivated to be sexually aggressive or if presented with a particular set of circumstances where there's unlikely to be any consequences might be sexually aggressive and 
you don't you know the 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 difficulty for women particularly for young women because i said as i said earlier victims of rape tend to skew really young is they don't know who they don't know who it is so they this is why women you know are, are frightened of walking home alone at night all of this because it's it's a very fearsome risk and it's very difficult to assess who poses who poses a danger to you um so I'm really not saying that all men are rapists, but I am saying that there's probably some minority who are very, who are very risky. I mean, certainly until they age out of it. We know that men age out of all kinds of violent crime, including sexually violent crime, probably in their forties. Normally, it's quite rare for someone to remain really aggressive. It's called so, precipitous decline of testosterone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but during that period of peak testosterone. There probably are some men who just need to be in prison. Probably not very many, but some. And and yeah, and again, it comes back to that utopianism thing. Like yeah. if your goal is to have absolute harmony throughout the world, I have bad news for you. <laughs> you know? But although if I can just uh you know, not not push back, but the, the idea that you know evolution psychology proposes all these grim realities about human nature, I think it it certainly does that, but it also talks about all of the wonderful, laudable elements of human nature, right? I mean, heroism and romantic love and parental love and compassion and empathy, all of those things didn't arise out of magic. They also arose through an evolutionary mechanism. So I think wrongly or unfairly, evolutionary psychology gets a you know a, a slap on the on the wrist when it tries to explain the negative you know diabolical manifestations of the repertoire of possible human phenomena but it is perfectly amenable to explaining all of the wonderful things that we do so so i would just call it a realist theory because it captures the fact that humans are complicated we can do amazingly wonderful and kind things and we can be complete assholes and that's that's all part of the repertoire of possibilities of the human condition right yeah and also i mean i don't think that the sort of uh the uh, i don't really like using the word woke because it's quite imprecise but let's say the woke view of, of human nature is not is not very sunny either <laughs> right <laughs> like that view of the world is it, it's all about power it's all about people dominating each other like certain groups um not only have original sin but have absolutely no way of redeeming themselves like the so white white people and men and, men. and white straight men. people and so, yeah you know the, the 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 baddies like there's it's 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 sort of derived from christianity some of right. these woke ideas but it, it strips away any possibility of redemption redemption <laughs> which is what right. christianity offers so i wouldn't say that it's like a, a more attractive view of the world at least to me, than the evolutionary psychology one. And also I think the evolutionary psychology one has the benefit of being true. Right, right, right. So. Do you, do you, now this, I've never, I mean, I, I know that there's been a study that has looked at adoption of feminist ideology and certain, uh, I, I can't remember if it was morphological features, but anecdotally I've proposed that there must be some you know, morphological predictors of the likelihood of women. And, and, and to some, this is going to be very offensive, but again, I deal with reality. I don't care about, you know, managing people's feelings. Uh, do you think there is any possible truth to that? The idea being that, so 
to the extent that some women who let's say are, are very beautiful who will recognize that they they have a lot of power in the mating market just from a self interest perspective they're less likely to adopt a lot of those you know the the, the extreme militant ideology you know of, of the radical form of feminism because it doesn't it won't benefit them whereas and forgive me i don't mean to be mean if you're andrea dworkin maybe it makes sense to hold those values do you think there's any truth to, to this theory or do you think it's just uh, me being mean I think that status has an, status games and feminism is a really interesting area of study that I've been thinking about a lot. I think that people are drawn to certain status games within feminism for different reasons. One, I think there is definitely um, for women who have lower sexual market value to use the. Um, more polite, but also fairly cold. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, the, the sterile <laughs> terminology, yes. Yeah. Um, certainly there are some ideas within feminism, the sort of um, big is beautiful uh, sort of opposition to what's often called like conventional ideas of beauty, which seems to offer access to men of higher sexual market value if one if, if given that the the goal seems to basically be with those sorts of campaigns which predominate in women's magazines and on instagram and so on to basically persuade men to find different things sexy right which i don't think is likely to work i mean it, it, it well it might work in the sense that men might profess open you know it might become socially unacceptable to prefer particular appearance in women i don't think it's likely to actually affect how men sincerely feel but you can see why it would be attractive if um you you feel low status basically right. well that's 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 the that's the genius of the dove marketing campaign that's yeah. the genius of naomi wolf's uh the beauty myth right because it is espousing a message it, you know if i don't score well I'm, I'm speaking now if i were a woman if i don't score well on some of the morphological metrics that I unfortunately can't change, you know, uh, you know whatever, my facial symmetry. Uh, well, then I, I'm much more likely to accept the position that says, well, but don't worry about that because all of these things are completely random. They're socially constructed. That's the only place that men can keep you down is by constructing this arbitrary so-called universal beauty standard. And then I don't know if it was millions, but many, many women decided to gulp up Naomi Wolf's book because it it is a form of assuaging my deep Darwinian insecurities, correct? Yes, although I, I, say, I, I say two things on that. Sure. One is, I think that there is, I think a fair critique of um, sort of discourses on beauty. I don't think it's possible to just transform what we consider to be beautiful. I think what probably is um, a worthy goal is to encourage women to, to seek sources of self-esteem outside of beauty. Say, look, sorry, like kind of definitionally, beauty is hierarchical and, and, and there's only a short period of your life where you have access to the top of the hierarchy and many women will never have access to the top of the hierarchy. But you can seek 
you can have self-esteem as a mother you can have self-esteem as a as a friend as a member of your religious community you know there are all sorts of other ways in which you can feel a sense of feel that you are valued within your community and that's a good thing and to encourage women to only sort of load all of their status eggs into one basket I think is is a mistake I mean one of the reasons I called my podcast Maiden Mother Matriarch is I think that one of the features of our contemporary society which is very harmful to women is that women are encouraged to stay in the maiden mode as long as possible and to never progress to the to the mother and the matriarch stages of life which yes you know you lose your beauty you lose that source of status, but you you ought to attain other kinds of status. You know, there is status in being the matriarch, even if you're a withered old crone. There is, you know, right. there ought to be status in that because you have wisdom, because you all of this, you have a position within the family. Um, and I'd say as well that one of the one of the means that women use now to try and stay in maiden mode forever is cosmetic surgeries and other interventions, which are completely which are hyper novel. They, like our ancestors didn't have access to these. And I think there is a strong argument for saying that actually when you have a beauty industry that is constantly ratcheting up the sort of sophistication of that kind of technology and offering ever more expensive and sometimes dangerous forms of intervention, which yeah. I think I, I, I think the, the way that that economy functions is that new tech comes onto the market. It's initially expensive and rare it's adopted by celebrities who normalize it etc things like instagram one of the reasons i'm sure that instagram is so bad for teenage girls mental health is it gives them the false impression it gives them a false sense of the actual female intersexual competition that they're facing exactly because they because they go onto instagram and they see the most beautiful women in the world who have had various expensive procedures done and also are filtered and all of this and they think that that's the peer that that's their peer group when in fact of course their peer group is just as like chubby and spotty as they are right. <laughs> because their peer well, group is like normal um but i think that there is an argument actually for saying that maybe you know maybe we should ban the brazilian butt lift for instance the world's most dangerous cosmetic procedure women like dozens of women die every year going and getting this procedure done the Kardashians claim not to have it done, you know, but yes. that like, maybe we should be putting a ceiling on the interventions available because that would change the whole market. And maybe this constant ratcheting up is actually doing women a lot of harm. So. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, when you mentioned the, uh, intrasexual competition as, as, uh, you know, miscalibrated in, in young girls' heads uh, when they watch Instagram. There is actually a, I believe, actually a, a British-based uh, psychiatrist. Uh, I think his name is Abed, uh, A-B-E-D, if I'm not mistaken, uh, who has looked at eating disorders from an evolutionary perspective rooted in this miscalibration of intrasexual a competition in exactly exactly to your point. I mean, he didn't use the example of Instagram because when those papers came out, there wasn't any Instagram. So I think there's there's definitely a lot of uh, uh, validity to uh, what what you're saying. Uh, I wanted to just briefly move to a few other uh, issues to discuss. What are your thoughts of uh, on? Uh, I, and again, forgive me that I haven't seen it in your book yet. I haven't read it carefully, but uh, pornography. You have a position on that? Uh, broadly anti. <laughs> because because i'm particularly anti um online pornography because i think it's a completely different product from 
Playboy magazine of the 1960s. And I think that it has a very, very deleterious effect on sexual cultures and on its consumers, actually. I think that men have a very, you know, um, good reason to strongly object to online porn because I think it manipulates their... their... I, the, the term I use in the book is uh, limbic capitalism, which I borrowed from David Courtright, um, meaning uh, business models that depend on manipulating people's limbic systems, i.e. The, right. the, the bit of the brain responsible for feeling, and unconsciously, crucially. So things like gambling, junk food, um, opioids, smoking, and definitely online porn are all examples of limbic capitalism, which has become much, much more sophisticated as time has gone by. And businesses are really, really good at manipulating our limbic systems. You know, just things like the reason that um, uh, so many apps on phones are brightly coloured, particularly blue, and look like they sort of shine at the edges is because we find things that yeah. look like fresh water and fresh fruit very appealing for evolutionary reasons. I actually set my phone to grayscale. You know, you can do that in the settings <laughs> to make it less addictive. And it really works. It's actually much, much less appealing when it's in grayscale. Um, these are all the sort of subtle manipulations that businesses use. And um, a, a lot of us are very susceptible to them and some of us more than others. Some people seem to be particularly vulnerable to the, the addictive effects of, of limbic capitalist products. And porn is definitely one of those. Um, porn user, porn users are very much on a Pareto distribution and I can't remember the figures off the top of my head, but it's something like 2% of users watch porn for more than seven hours a week or something like that. Wow. And they, yeah, I might be getting those numbers slightly wrong, but basically there is a, a small minority who, who watch an enormous amount of porn and are basically incapable of having normal sexual relationships as a consequence of that. Right. Because they end up with erectile dysfunction it went it with real people and also they are likely to end up with increasingly weird sexual tastes because of the way that the platforms are designed to suggest more and more sort of niche and extreme content right to people who are already susceptible yeah no uh so i, I like the term limbic uh capitalism i wish i knew it when uh, i wrote some of my older books because to your point in, in several of my earlier books, I talk about the evolutionary roots of what I call dark side consumption. So these are forms of consumatory acts that are that that ostensibly are maladaptive. So pornographic addiction, you mentioned pathological gambling, eating disorders, excessive suntanning, compulsive buying. Uh, and so what I argue is that if you look at the epidemiology of each of these, dark side consumption phenomena, they happen in exactly the same forms, irrespective of time period, irrespective of culture, whereby the sex of the sufferer is pretty much the main demographic predictor. So eating disorders, uh, compulsive buying, excessive suntanning are almost exclusively female-based afflictions, pornographic addictions, pathological gambling, excessive physical and uh, financial risk-taking are almost exclusively male. And then that insight then uh, begs for you to ask the question of, so then what is the evolutionary reason for that maladaptive behavior? And what I argue in my books is that it's, it's a misfiring of an otherwise adaptive process, right? So for example, when it comes to compulsive buying, 
uh, I was able to predict even before I had gotten into the literature on compulsive buying, what it is that women were who suffered from that affliction would be compulsively hoarding. And it wasn't lawnmowers and electric uh, guitars. It was beautification products, right? It was stilettos, it was cosmetics, it was sexy clothes. And so you take an adaptive mechanism, which is I'd like to beautify myself in the mating market, and you make it hyperactive. It's the same argument for OCD, right? OCD is the scanning for dangers. Well, when it is within a regulated zone, within an adaptive zone, it makes perfect sense for you to wash your hands if you just if you just shook the hand of someone who was coughing incessantly there. But if you spend eight hours before going to work washing your hands with scalding hot water, then that's probably OCD. And so have you are you familiar with that literature that tries to root okay do you want to add anything to that um one of the examples i use in the book is the australian jewel beetle have you have you i don't think so tell me about read that this i can't remember the name of the researchers now but there was this uh research done in australia of um uh, the jewel beetle which is uh, very commonly found in arid parts of australia and it's this sort of big beetle like this and they're, they're golden colored and sort of shiny and researchers discovered, I think it was in, in the 80s, that people, um, my family are Australian, the, mm. the, 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 the classic beer bottle that you get in Australia is a sort of sh a sh short, brown, shiny beer bottle. It's called a stubby. People had been throwing stubbies out of their cars and they were sort of littering the size of the road. And the jewel beetles were so attracted to the glossy, shiny bottles that they were actually the males are actually choosing to mate with the bottles rather than with the females <laughs> wow because it was because it was a super stimulus stimulus yeah 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 right and this is i think what porn basically does as well and what yeah. sex robots do as well they 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 tap into what is an adaptive feature but they do it in a maladaptive way um because of because of an environmental mismatch and yeah i mean i think that honestly you can make a very sort of just even aside from all the feminist objections to the exploitation of porn performers and effects on sexual culture and all of this, you can just make straightforwardly a sort of pro-man case right. <laughs> against the porn industry and say that actually users are being exploited, which they are. Um, and, and you end up with this weird effect as well in the sexual culture where on the one hand, you have an increasingly hyper-sexualized public life. You know, you have much more explicit sex scenes on television, You'll have lingerie models on the streetscape, et cetera, in ways that you never used to even a few decades ago. Um, but you also actually have people having less sex, the so-called sex recession, where young people in particular are having less sex. And it's increasingly common for men to enter their 20s or even 30s, still being virgins and so on. Um, I actually think that those things are connected to one another. I think there's an extent to which when people have constant access to sexual stimuli particularly in 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 porn you know the super stimuli of porn they're less motivated to have real sexual relationships with one another and the risk and the the difficulty involved in going out and finding a real partner and putting up with all their nonsense and you know <laughs> all that the nature of real human relationships you can bypass that and you can just find all of your sexual release in porn or in you know in your sex robot i think this is this is increasingly where we're headed that, that there will be an even even more extreme super stimulus available and i think it's really sad and i i i do not welcome the future 
where you have young men who in, who, 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 who in another life could have been happy, productive husbands and fathers, instead choosing to opt out. Right. Do you, do you get, uh, of, co of course, this is not me saying it. I'm putting my, my detractor hat, my Louis Perry detractor hat. Do you get any, I'm, I'm sure you do, uh, you're so puritanical, Louise, that, you know, you're, you're <laughs> right. You're, it's just, I mean, why don't you chill out a bit and, and, and appreciate the fact that there is great release in, in freedom, live and let live and stop being so conservatively preachy. Of course. <laughs> yeah. That, that, I mean, I suspect that that might be the number one attack that is levied at you, no? I don't know. I get it from all sides, which I think is probably, <laughs> I think it's probably a good sign. It hopefully means that I'm like forging an original path of some kind. Um, yes. I mean, to which I say, do you have any idea what the Puritans are really like? I am, you know, right. I am weak, weak source compared to, not <laughs> just compared to actual, you know, Puritans of the 17th century, but, but compared to actually all societies ever. You know, right. I think that one of the features of um, our current historical moment is that people don't realize how strange it is and that there are an enorm enormous numbers of ways in which the way that we live is radically different from the way that our ancestors lived and that people live in other parts of the world still and one of them is when it comes to um uh sexual norms like no culture ever decides that a free-for-all is the correct way of dealing with the regulation of heterosexuality Right. Like the nature of heterosexuality is that there is a, we started at the top of the show talking about this. Men and women are profoundly different. There are certain risks that women carry in relation to things like pregnancy and violence that men don't carry. There are, there are asymmetries inherent to sexual politics, which are just a, fa a feature of life. And to some extent you can do away with them with the pill, or at least you can ameliorate them to some extent. I mean, you can't actually sort of change our brains. I, one of the arguments I make in the book is that even if we now have te novel technologies which allow you to suspend your fertility, your brain doesn't know that. <laughs> right? So when you're when you're having a casual sexual relationship with someone, your brain doesn't know that you're not risking pregnancy. Yeah. So uh, particularly to that, to, to that point, I mean, to, and that's kind of part of the whole mismatch hypothesis. To that point. Uh, even though we now have DNA paternity tests, men's uh, emotional, cognitive, and behavioral strategies to thwart paternity uncertainty hasn't magically disappeared because we no longer face that because we've got DNA paternity tests. So it's exactly what you're saying. Yeah, we still have Stone Age brains and you can't just, you know, yeah. we, we, we've had the pill for 60 years. There's nothing yeah. Yeah. In, in terms of our species history. Um, yes, we've had the pill for, for five minutes in, 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 in historical terms. Um, we've had the idea of sexual liberations, you know, this is hyper, hyper novel stuff. The vast majority of cultures have, have things like marriage, have things like a taboo on premarital sex, generally for women, have all sorts of ways, which are now considered to be very authoritarian of regulating heterosexuality. I don't necessarily propose you know, a complete return to that kind of system because I think we do now have the pill. We do have a radically different economy. There are all sorts of ways in which our material circumstances are now completely different. At the same time, I think it's very hubristic to think that you can just sort of redesign society on the back of an envelope and just do away with the whole idea of any any kind of, you know, the 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 the, the basic principle of of liberal feminism 
is that with consent, anything goes. The only thing that matters is consent. Right. Everything else can be removed. And actually, there's an op- there's a deliberate opposition to anything viewed as traditional. And I think that that system is doomed to failure. It's failing already. That's that's what Me Too was all about. Yeah, the fact that actually completely obliterating or attempting to um, traditional sexual norms actually puts women at risk of sexual assault. Yeah. That's All right. Saying. No, that sounds good. Uh, <laughs> that, that sounds good, but yes, I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> uh, three more quick, sort of more personal questions. Number one, much of your work is, you know, female related, improving the lot of women in all sorts of important ways. Do you ever foresee I mean, is is there a higher supra goal? I want to make the world better, and I will start off by dealing with half of humanity called women and improving their lot. But then I'll move on to to other things. Or do you foresee that you know for for the rest of your life? And and of course, there's enough work to to last a lifetime. Uh, do you always foresee staying within that lane? Um, I mean, I think when you write about um. As far as I can tell, I actually have as many male readers as female. Mm. And you can't write about heterosexuality without writing about men. Um, to some extent, I am able to write about some of these topics in a more provocative way because I can get away with it because I'm a woman. Mm. I'm aware of that, which is why, you know, um, I can I can have more of an impact on those topics and be strategic about that, which is which is, you know, worth doing. Um, I mean, my next book that I'm working on at the moment is called The Case for Having Kids. Oh, actually, about... that was going to be my one of my other questions. Oh, well. Other <laughs> projects. So you're, you're go, go ahead. Segue into that. Go ahead. <laughs> Which obviously is very relevant to um, women. So, uh, I mean, to, to, to put it very briefly, The Case for Having Kids is not that kids are delightful though they are and i you know i'm the mother of a nearly two-year-old and i do think the kids are wonderful and i want to have a whole bunch more yeah wait 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 till that kid is 14 and then we'll have a conversation again (laughs) um but rather that actually we have precipitously declining birth rates um almost everywhere in the world and particularly in the west and there are all sorts of very troubling social consequences from that and economic consequences from that which i don't think people have have recognized sufficiently and it's very likely that the welfare state is going to collapse in my lifetime because of the nature of demographic imbalance. And I mean, putting it bluntly, basically, if you don't have kids, you're not, you're not going to have a welfare state there to look after you when you're old. So um, the case for having kids is actually a very, a very kind of um, urgent economic one, as well as being a, an emotional one. But, um, you know, a lot of the book is about why it is that so many um women in particular have just chosen to forgo motherhood. This is very much a trend driven by um, women and, act- and access to contraception and education. All of the things that correlate with declining birth rates are, are basically to do with women opting out of motherhood. And I think we haven't made, I'm, I'm trying to offer a sort of feminist case for motherhood. Right. It- um, I'm wondering in cases where I don't know if you've addressed this in your in your next book, but in cases where a couple has decided to remain childless, is there any data that shows uh, how much of that decision is based on the woman making that decision versus the man? Interesting question. I don't know. That's that would be a good study. 
Yeah. I do know that um, female education correlates with not having kids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But male education doesn't. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Well, if anything, yeah. it might actually increase it because with more education, my status goes up as a man and yeah. status is the biggest correlate to me having sexual access to many women. And so I might expect it to actually be the opposite. Uh, it increases my uh, reproductive success. Okay, last question. Uh, I mean, originally I would have asked you, what's your next project? But you already addressed that. So it, it's a bit off uh, in terms of the cadence. Uh, it's become customary for me to ask the following question about regret, uh, if only because in one of the ending chapters of my forthcoming book on happiness, I talk about the fact that, you know, if you could live a life that hopefully is free of, of many looming regrets, then you achieve what the ancient Greeks talked about, ataraxia, tranquility of mind. And of course, by the way, regret, there's a an evolutionary element to it. When you talk about sexual regret, you know, what is it that men regret? It, they, they regret the foregone opportunities that they didn't take, whereas women regret the ones that they actually did take, the short-term yeah. mate with some idiot who... <laughs> Very sorry, telling but, difference. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. <laughs> but but not necessarily rooting it in a, in a sexual dynamic. Uh, regret is a very interesting phenomenon for me. I mean, because I was originally exposed to it by one of my former professors in, in my PhD, Thomas Gilovich, who's, uh, you know, one of the pioneers of this study of the psychology of regret, where he distinguishes between regret due to action. You know, I regret that I cheated on my wife and that put an end to my marriage versus regret due to inaction. You know, I decided to become a physician because I come from a family of physicians, but I really wanted to be an artist and I regret that I never became an artist. And it turns out that over the long term, Louise, um, most people's lo most looming regret is one of inaction. So having set that ground for you and you're still a, a very young woman, if you look back at your life so far, what would be your biggest regret if you don't mind sharing? Uh, I slightly regret not having a baby younger. Okay. Wh Although why? I did, because then I would have more time to okay. have yeah. more children with more spacing. I mean, I wasn't that old. I had, I got pregnant when my first child was 28, um, which actually in my social circle is extraordinarily young. Yeah. Um, but um, I mean, it's, a it's borderline play, pedophilia in today's world. <laughs> it's difficult because, um, you know, if I had had a first, because I'd be with my husband for 10 years now. And if, and if we, sort of if contraception hadn't existed we'd probably have three children by now mm. um but also would i have been able to i mean actually to be fair i did write this book while pregnant and with a baby but would i have been able to do all the various things that i've done professionally maybe not right because, uh, it, like there is there is a trade-off it's, it's true that you can't have it all so, yeah i actually share i i empathize with that regret because my wife and i have been together for 23 years and our children are much younger than you would have otherwise expected. We we took the willful decision of having them late. And I would have preferred for them to be number three and four rather than number one and two. So I, I completely share. Probably if we're talking about parental regrets, my my other, I mean, it's not a existential regret, but a looming regret is that uh, my wife and I speak many languages uh, collectively. I also speak fluent French, Arabic is my mother tongue, and also Hebrew, we're Lebanese Jews. My wife speaks Armenian. So between the two of us, we speak five languages, and yet our children are, you know, only fluent in French and English. I greatly regret that because I think 
it it truly opens up the world to you if you're if you're able to just break out into completely different languages uh and so i regret that i didn't have the the uh the discipline to teach them all those different languages thoughts i am uh, a terrible linguist <laughs> i, Only I one. really english I only speak. I speak a little bit of French because I was forced to do it at school. But otherwise, I it's it's my it's a, it's a source of um, a debate with my husband because my husband's a fantastic linguist and he speaks Japanese and he's like oh, Arabic wow. and yeah, yeah. He's he's a uh, last. But he's, he's what? He's he's British. He's, he's British. Not, oh wow! Yeah. So how did how did he learn Arabic and Japanese? What what's the story there? Not I mean I know we're coming he to just, the end of. Go ahead. <laughs> he decided to take Japanese at school just because he was interested in it. Oh, that's wonderful. So that's... he did it. He did it like independently outside of school. Um, and uh, and then has, uh, and then he has got an Arabic tutor as an adult. And yeah, he's just really, really good languages, really interested in them. And um, he thinks that I'm, he finds me bewildering because I'm just like, well, I, I just, it would be an enorm enormous amount of boring work. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to. And right. also being good at English is like my only skill. <laughs> <laughs> if you take that away from me what have i got yes. <laughs> if i try and do you know i can't work in french a, a specialist versus a jack of all trade i get it yeah. uh, all right let me <laughs> i, I want to promote your book again guys go out get this look it's even small enough you could take it to the beach so please go out and purchase it louise any last words it was truly delightful to speak to you anything else you want to add that we might have forgotten to cover no i didn't think so there's an audio book the book as well. Okay. Is it is it yeah. with your, if I may say, I hope your husband doesn't beat me up, is it with your intoxicating and alluring voice? <laughs> I did. I insisted on reading it, yes. Oh, well, you know, you, you did a much better job than I did because the, the biggest criticism I received on the parasitic mind is that I wasn't the narrator. And mm. uh, I I explained to to the people who were very upset that it wasn't my voice, that it's it wasn't ultimately my decision to make. The audio publisher who buys it ultimately has the final say. And for whatever reason, they decided not to go with the voice of the Lebanese Barry White. And so, but in your case, apparently, is, well, is it really? They didn't, no, they didn't want to use me because it was an American audiobook publisher. And the convention apparently in America is generally to use a voice actor. So they pushed really hard actually to use a voice. And accent. what was it that what what's the marketing uh persuasion tactic that you used that allowed you to break through their 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 position? To refuse to sign the contract. <laughs> <laughs> really? You you were that yeah. committed to you reading the why? What what's partly because the voice actor well, this is a bit indiscreet, but partly because the voice actor they found I thought was very bad. Um and I just really didn't like the idea of of of, of having a Sub, you know substandard narrator and partly because i'm just constantly get emails from people saying i i i apparently have uh, an asmr voice i didn't know this before you you I truly do i i don't yeah. know, i don't know exactly what the metrics of that that concept is the as whatever but i mean i certainly do notice it, that you have a you know a, a kind of a beguiling i mean the the british also adds right because Two people can say the exact same thing. One person says it in, in Southern drawl. The other one says them in, in, in British English. And then suddenly the British one is a lot smarter, right? So you add like 20 IQ points. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yes. uh, um, I think that the asthma voice is a bit like coriander. I don't think it works on everyone. Right. Okay. Very interesting. Uh, it's quite an interesting science, which is entirely new to me, but yeah. well. Good job. If if it doesn't, if that whole uh, writing career doesn't work out for you, you've got a whole new audio career that can open up in the future. Mm, you're not the first to say that. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's a delight. Stay on the line so we can say goodbye offline. Uh, real pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Cheers.